welcome to that 90s wrestling podcast. I'm your host, James Saw, and today you got a very special guest for 83 weeks. He kicked Vince McMahon's ass, and he is the WWE Hall of Famer, the one and only, Mr. Eric Bischoff. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing very well. How are you today? Oh, good, thanks. I uh, just mentioned uh, off-camera fact the weather starting to make a bit of a turn, but yeah. How's Cody's? Any uh, zombies been turning up over there lately? Uh, absolutely no zombies. Uh, it's too <laughs> cold here. The winters are too harsh for zombies. They tend to like Los Angeles and, you know, warmer climates. So, uh, no, no zombies here, man. Well, what did you think to that angle that, uh, the other night on the pay-per-view uh, for the Lumberjack match? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It caused a big uproar for about four minutes. Yeah. And it's silliness. Look, it, it was business. There was a business opportunity there. Uh, from what I've read, not from what I know, but what I've read, uh, and I think it's credible, suggests there was a $1 million payday yeah. for that little stunt. And that's all it was, was a stunt. They didn't ask the zombies to wrestle. A zombie didn't win the world heavyweight title. A zombie wasn't named a new general manager. A zombie didn't win the, you know, money in the bank or king of the ring. So it's it was just a moment in time. And look, if it made great business sense and it came with a million-dollar check, I'd have done it too. And so yeah. would anybody else who was thinking about business. I say that. I think apparently uh, Scotty Too Hotty was actually one of the zombies. So I'm thinking, man, if he actually done the worm as a zombie onto the miss, I would have yes, popped that, that to be honest. What if we would have broke out into the a, a zombie doing a worm? Come yeah. on. <laughs> that would have been TV gold. Yeah, definitely a mission opportunity, but never um, <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> cool. So I suppose we'll jump into it. So WCW. So I'm going to be taking a deep dive into the NWO. But before we get into that, so you joined WCW. So I know you started out a uh, AWA and you've done a trial run at uh, WWE. So how did the WCW get, uh, gig get together? Well, while I was in um, AWA, uh, I was there for the, the dying days, if you will. Vern Gagne, who was the promoter and the owner, uh, was funding the AWA out of, his, out of his own personal funds. There was not enough revenue coming in for AWA to fund itself. So Vern had to supplement the lack of revenue um, out of his own personal finances. And that well ran dry. And I was there, you know, there, there was a little bit of water left in the well when I got there. But there was a point in time, I think in 1990, 91, where, you know, we weren't getting paychecks. And there was no hope that that was going to change. So that's when I started reaching out, thinking about what I was going to do if WWE, or excuse me, AWA closed their doors. And I, uh, I ended up reaching out to WCW because I had heard through the grapevine that they were looking for announcers and sent in an audition tape and ended up getting an audition and ultimately the job. Cool. And you was uh, basically just was a C-show announcer, but not long after this, uh, Bill Watts was shown the door and you made your play to become the vice president, I suppose, at the time. So I know you overtook Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone in the rankings and not long after the decision was made, Jim Ross uh, essentially uh, decided to get himself released and left. So was it safe to say that Jim Ross wasn't happy that you managed to get the job that he wanted? 
I, I don't know if it was so much that. I think Jim was tired of WCW. I mean, mentally tired and emotionally tired. I don't think his heart was in WCW management from the beginning. And without good, you know, with good reason, I should say, with good reason. WCW management, you know, when I got there, Dusty Rhodes was calling the shots and Jim Hurd was his boss. You know, shortly after I got there, Jim Hurd was gone and this guy by the name of Kip Fry was Dusty Rhodes' boss. And then Kip Fry left shortly thereafter and Bill Watts came in as the boss of WCW. And creatively, there were a lot of changes in, in, in power structure um, under each of those respective bosses. So I think by the time, you know, uh, I, I ended up getting the job as executive producer and then eventually vice president, I think by that time, Jim had just seen enough and had enough and yeah. wanted to change the scenery. And I, I can't blame him, honestly. If, if I hadn't got the job, I would have done the same thing. So yeah. there you go. Cool. I suppose, I mean, the big thing what uh, I suppose uh, changed the world that time, uh, signing Hulk Hogan. So uh, step us through it. So from what I've read, it was yourself and I think Ric Flair went to go and see Hulk. Was that right? Yeah, well, initially I had reached out to Hulk Hogan through a mutual acquaintance and let Hulk know I was interested in having a conversation with him. Hulk then called me late one evening, uh, actually early one morning, and uh, got me up out of bed. And I had my first conversation with Hulk, and we agreed that we would meet shortly thereafter down in Orlando. And that's when I brought Rick with me. So the initial contact was a direct one through an intermediary. Um, but the first meeting, definitely, uh, Ric Flair was there. Yeah. And how long did it take before you put pen to paper? Oh, gosh, I can't remember anymore. It might have been two months, maybe. Oh, Six soon then. It happened pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose this uh, coincided with you, uh, Crate and Nitro. So I know you've mentioned that you went to Ted Turner and Turner said to you, fact, you know, what will it take to challenge WWE? So when you said to him, give you a prime time, I know you mentioned you didn't realize what you're saying, but how did it feel when you actually walked out that door and was like, right, what should I do now? Well, actually, Hulk Hogan came in, just to be clear, Hulk Hogan came into WCW about a year before Nitro happened. Hulk had already been with us when we launched Nitro for a while. Um, and, I mean, you summarize it. You know, perfectly. Uh, I, I was scheduled to have a meeting with Ted Turner about one subject. I, I walked into that office, sat down, and, you know, I was nervous. It was the first time that I ever, you know, was presenting an idea to Ted, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. So it was a little nerve-wracking and exciting. I don't know if I was as much nervous as I was excited. Either way, my adrenaline was pumping. And uh, I got into my presentation for about a total of a minute or less. And Ted hit the brakes and said, as you, you know, accurately quoted it, you know, Eric, what's it going to do to, uh, to get competitive with WWE? And, you know, when I answered, it was more a self-defense mechanism. Yeah. You know, I hadn't expected the question. I had never thought about that question. It was never a, a goal at that point. You know, my goal was much different at that point in time when I was meeting with Ted. And the idea of going head-to-head -head with WWE and actually competing with them directly as opposed to indirectly as WCW had been competing. Yes, they were in the same industry, but there was no real competition in any measurable way. Um, so when Ted laid that on me, you know, and said, okay, here's prime time, 
I was dumbfounded. I was stunned, as was everybody else in the room, except for Ted. And it, it, it took me a while. I mean, I literally, I walked out of Ted's office and I was with Harvey Schiller at the time. We both walked out together and we talked for a few minutes. I don't remember what we talked about because I think I was still in a state of shock. And uh, Harvey had to go to another meeting right away. I didn't. So I walked out of Ted's office and out of that side of the office building over to my side of the office building. And on the way over, I stopped about halfway in between and just sat down and went, huh, now what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> cool. And uh, I suppose that you can, I mean, you can throw it to today now, I suppose. So obviously, AEW went head to head with uh, NXT and done the job on them, basically. And obviously, NXT has now moved. And I mean, it looks like that Dynamite's moving and beginning of next year. Would you say for AEW, to actually test themselves against WWE, fact they should go head to head with Raw SmackDown. Or do you think they should stay in their own lane where they are at the minute? I would stay in their own lane. I mean, there's no reason to test themselves, as you put it, or compete with WWE unless you're prepared and determined and have a strategy that makes sense to go after the majority of the market share. You know, and that's one of the things, and I talk about this a lot on my podcast, 83 Weeks. Um, you know, I know a lot of the, the fan base yep. and the people who have podcasts or participate in online chats or newsletters or that, that type of thing. I, I call them the impassioned fan base, <laughs> not just a casual fan base, not your yeah. average person who, hey, wrestling's out and I have nothing else to do. Let's watch some wrestling and have a beer and a good time. I think that makes up the vast majority of the wrestling audience. But there is a impassioned portion of that wrestling audience that is much more active in social media and so forth. Um, that segment of the audience loves to talk about an AEW NXT war. You yourself made it sound like, you know, AEW ran NXT off, off television. Well, they didn't. The yeah. difference between AEW's ratings and, and NXT's ratings were, while significant, in some respects, from an advertising point of view and a business point of view, we're negligible from a business perspective. Now, if you're a fan who likes to live in that world where one company is competing against another company, then it's fun stuff to talk about because it gives you a reason to share your opinion as to why AEW is better or why, in your opinion, NXT is better. So it, 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 that that discrepancy or that gap within the ratings between the respective shows were far more interesting to the impassioned fan than it was to either company from a business perspective. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll put an asterisk next to that and come back to that in a minute. But from a purely business point of view, if you look at it, and this is where wrestling fans tend to either not have the experience or the knowledge of the industry in general, or just they don't care. But there is a finite number of advertisers who are going to advertise in professional wrestling. Yeah. There's more today than there ever has been. But nonetheless, there is a finite number of those advertisers at any given moment. Now, if you're an advertiser and you have decided you want to invest your advertising dollars 
in a wrestling product because advertising agencies and the people that work in them don't make decisions like wrestling fans. They don't sit back and go, oh, man, but I like this World Heavyweight Champion way better. He's cooler than that World Heavyweight Champion, so I'm going to spend my money over there. Yeah, Wrestling fans probably subconsciously think that perhaps there's some, some truth to that, but there's not. It's purely a numbers game. Mm. And as such, if there's an advertiser who is interested in advertising and wrestling, what are your choices? What are your best choices? We know what your choices are. What are your best choices to get the largest bang for your advertising dollar? Because if you are a person making those decisions, that is the most important decision you make in your career. So given the severity of the pressure of that decision, if you're an advertiser and you want to advertise in wrestling and you know your job's on the line, where are you going to put your money? Exactly. If you're going to put it in WWE. Exactly. And if you put your money in WWE, you don't really care too much whether it's in well, you do to a degree because the audience compositions are different. But you know, taking audience composition out of it, um, you don't care if it's on Monday Night Raw, if it's in SmackDown, or if it's in USA Network. You don't care as long as the math makes sense. And yes, AEW does statistically better than NXT in the 18 to 49 year old demo, which everybody talks about being such an attractive demo forever. Well, it is, but by the way, that's not fucking new. That's been yeah. that way for a time. So now you've got a discrepancy of about, oh, let's call it, I don't know what the numbers are closely, but let's just say it's a discrepancy of 50,000. Let's just say for, as an example, AEW delivers... 550,000 viewers in the 18 to 49, and NXT only delivers 450. Ooh, that's 100,000. Well, guess what? If I'm buying USA Network and my ad's over here on Raw, I'm going to eat that. Yeah. Those AEW numbers will be crumbs compared to what I can get over here for my ad dollar. Yeah. So am I going to put my ad dollar? Where is it most efficient? Yeah, we're all smart <laughs> Those are the nuances of the business of professional wrestling and therefore some of the decisions that drive the business of professional wrestling, including zombies yeah. for a million dollar check. Those are the decisions that are made within the industry of the professional wrestling industry that I think are sometimes detached from the consciousness or knowledge of what I'll call impassioned wrestling fans. Great. And speaking of financials and advertisers, so not long after Hogan came along, you brought in Matchman Man Randy Savage, and obviously one of the big talking points was the um, Slim Jim sponsorship as well. So, I mean, how great was it getting not only Matchman but bringing over this sponsorship with him? Well, obviously, it was it was a massive uh, a, a massive positive decision yeah not only because we were getting a great talent forget about the slim jim you know money for just a moment oh wait a minute i want to circle back to something i i said earlier about the ratings not meaning too much for each company outside of the bragging rights I, I would. I, I need to also acknowledge the fact that for aew even those insignificant numbers have much more value strategically, not financially, but strategically 
given their relationship with Turner Broadcasting. As long as you're showing growth, as long as you're showing respectable numbers, um, you, the likelihood of a good relationship with your network increases exponentially. The better the numbers, the better the relationship. So those incremental differences that that, uh, that AEW was able to enjoy in in the ratings and in the demos um, meant probably a lot to them strategically, if not financially. Okay, let's go back to <laughs> to to your previous question. Forget a bit about Slim Jim for just a moment, um, or set it aside because it was important. But even if Slim Jim hadn't been an opportunity, getting Randy Savage to come. Oh, yeah. WCW was, as a standalone opportunity, a pretty big success. Yeah, pretty big, a very big success. That was a good move. Now, add to the fact that there's a sponsor coming with him that pays his salary. Yeah, that's a sweet deal. I wish I could have made those deals all year long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it must be one of the greatest deals of all time in the history of. Not just wrestling, but I suppose all sports major or sports or entertainment. I mean, like you mentioned, you've got this once-in-a-generation talent, and he's basically bringing over sponsorship. What's paying for his wages, basically? Must be literally one of the greatest deals of all time. I mean, imagine that you imagine a a football player uh, in the UK um, is playing for a team over Germany or Spain or Italy or anywhere else, but is a hugely successful star. Yeah, and he's coming to a team over in the UK that well, maybe can't afford him. Mm, man, wish we wish we could pay that you know world class price, but we really can't do it. And then the the player says, "Oh, don't worry about it. I'll bring a sponsor that will pay my check." Yeah, yeah. Especially because it's a sponsor you don't already have. Yeah. In a league, by the way, WCW being the league in this conversation, WCW didn't have any sponsors. No. Sponsorship was a little tough to come by for professional wrestling back in the day. So, yeah, it was massive. Yeah. And uh, speaking of massive, so I mentioned off camera, I want to take a deep dive onto the NWO. So I know you got the influence from Japan. So how long did you have this idea? Like, I, I would imagine it evolved over time, but how long did you have this idea festering in your head before you started making contact with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash? Well, you know that's that's a, a narrative that's out there, and I've tried often to to try to clarify it. But I, I know people think that I was over there in, in Japan and I saw something that made me go, "Oh, I want to do that over here." In a way, that's true. But in terms of a storyline or an angle or what most impassioned wrestling fans believe is what I saw over there, that wasn't the case. What I saw was an entirely different presentation of the same product. In the United States, what I was familiar with, the leader in the industry was WWE. It was a very animated, cartoonish, made-for-children professional wrestling show. The audience was teen and preteen. That was their target audience. That's where they were making all their money. That's where all their licensing and merchandising revenues came from, which at that time were probably as significant as the TV deals that they had, yeah. maybe more, probably more. Yeah. And the idea for NWO 
was really born out of me recognizing that the way wrestling is produced in the United States at that time wasn't working. It really wasn't working for WWE. People don't realize it, but you know, in '90, there were other reasons for it. Obviously, there was a steroid trial, a scandal, yeah. other things that you know were kind of distracting. I'm sure for WWE, but regardless of why. The fact is that numbers were getting softer and softer and softer in WWE. So from my perspective, I'm looking at WWE losing ground with the American audience, becoming less popular. I'm looking at WCW, the company that I was in, was even way less popular than WWE was when they were losing popularity. And WCW was trying to do the same thing. WCW was at it. it at times, way too cartoony, most of the time, way too animated. They were trying to go after a children's audience, but they weren't succeeding because WWE, kind of like we talked about earlier, if yeah. you're a licensor or a merchandiser, you're going to go to the big. You're going to go to the big show. You're yeah. going to spend your money over here because that's the audience you want. And in many respects, that was the case in WCW as well. So when I was going over to Japan. The first thing I noticed was the stark contrast in the way the product was presented. In Japan, where they were selling out 80,000 seat arenas, the product was very believable. It was not cartoonish. It was not targeted for children. It was targeted towards adults. So the characters were more believable and more real. The storylines behind what was going on in front of you weren't nearly as animated. It felt more real. So my impressions and my takeaway in terms of what I came back with from Japan wasn't, oh, that's an idea. I'm going to try to make it work over here in a, in a creative sense. But in a strategic, tactical sense, I knew because of my experience there that I had to find a way I didn't know what it was at the time when I start, first started really going back and forth and this like, realization came to me. Hmm. I didn't know how I was going to do it or when I was going to do it, but I knew that somehow I had to transition into a more realistic way of telling wrestling stories, similar to the way wrestling was presented in Japan. Not storyline-wise, two different cultures. Can't do that, but the reality of it. And it was at about that same time that Scott and Kevin, and I have been thinking this now for probably six months, maybe a year, just right. in my head, trying to figure out how to do it. And about that time, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash became available. And that's when I went, huh, that's how I do it. Yeah. How, how did the contact come about, uh, contacting Scott? Did he like make up? Uh, from what I've gathered, was it DDP who was like the broker? Am I right? Or correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. Scott Hall was pretty close friends with DDP, even while Scott was in WWF or WWE. They still spoke on a regular basis. So it was easy for Scott to call DDP and say, hey, would you take Eric's temperature for me and, yeah. you know, see, see how he reacts. So that, that was a very easy thing to do. And it came to DDP. Cool. And, uh, I mean, you spoke about, obviously, WWE was catering to the children, which I suppose they're kind of doing these days, but so you want to be more realistic, I suppose you could say, and cater more to the adult audience, and I actually watched it last night, uh, Scott Hall's debut coming through the crowd, which was something if we never saw it before, we saw it very rarely, so how did the idea come about of Scott Hall coming into the ring from the crowd, and 
start cutting these promos? Well, the promo actually, uh, Conrad and I just this morning, uh, we did a podcast on that particular show. All right, (laughs) 25 years ago, you know, if you imagine that a quarter of a century ago, and here we are, yeah, you know, on on Skype talking about it still. It's amazing, really. Um, but you know, the idea in terms of how we were going to introduce Scott was something that evolved over the course of a couple of weeks. It would be hard for me to tell you who came up with what aspect of it. I will tell you, I wrote that promo myself and Scott pretty much did it word for word, but I'm not sure whose idea it was to come down through the stands. I could easily take credit for it, but it might also have been somebody else's idea. So yeah, it's like a lot of ideas, you know, that happen over a course of time. It's hard to go back and say, well, who actually came up with that part of that idea? You know, can't do yeah. it. Not honestly, anyway. Cool. And I mean, not long after this, obviously Nash turned up, and I'll, I actually watched that one as well because uh, I'm actually going through um, the Nitro. I started off with Scott Hall debut, and I'm working my way through the beginning, the end of your work, way through it. And when Nash turned up, like you could see the reaction from the audience, and like in your head, like you cutting the promo with these two guys, you must have been getting that reaction for yourself, thinking, "Yeah, this is really." Did you feel like it was starting to really take off at that point, or? A little bit further down the line. No, I mean, I got the sense right away. You know, I, it, it was instinct. You know, it wasn't based on previous experience because I didn't have any at the time. <laughs> regard uh, creatively, um, but you can feel it. You can feel a crowd. You can feel the energy in a crowd. You know, and I think that's one of the things that having been a talent sometimes is an advantage. Not all the time. Sometimes it can be a disadvantage too, but for me at least, being a talent gave me some feel of what a crowd's feeling, what the energy level is. It doesn't always come across on TV the same way it does in a venue, and it's not always an obvious thing either, but sometimes you just get a vibe, it's the only way I can say it, that wow, this this thing is working. I think it's probably like I don't play golf, but I'm imagining that if you're a golfer and you you get ready and you're on the tee and you want to drive that thing 300 yards, um, you know when you make contact with that ball yeah. perfectly. I think it's referred to as a sweet spot in golf, just like it is in other sports. But you go the minute you make contact, you just know. You can close your eyes and bet money on it. And that's just a feeling from experience, maybe just because you've got a good instinct, whatever. But I could feel that same kind of vibe right away. Yeah, uh, funny you mentioned golf. My father is a very keen golfer. And like I don't play himself, but when I've been with him just to see him play, when he hits a sweet spot, he's got that look in his face. He's like, oh, yeah, this is a good shot. So I can understand what you mean. Yeah, it's like when you're really hungry and you're craving yeah. something really good. Like in my case, especially when I'm in the UK, I I just I could eat curry four times, five times a day. Yeah. But imagine you're really, really hungry and you haven't had curry in six months and you walk down the street and you finally get you get into the curry shop, you think it's gonna be good, you have that first you're sitting there in front of you and you have that first taste. It's like, oh <laughs> I've been waiting for that. <laughs> Oh, hopefully we'll have you back in the UK end of the year and you can uh, feed your uh, 
what he cut taste for it. But yeah, so. but, it, but how about this? You know, this is the only podcast I've been doing a lot of interviews for a lot of years, and I've been doing podcasts for a number of them now, and I've never found a way to connect Curry golf and professional wrestling, but we just did it. Off like an history. <laughs> cool. So before you did come to Hogan uh, with the idea of the NWO, uh, how close was the talks with uh, King Mabel to be the third man? <laughs> That's funny. And people say, people say, you know, people in the UK don't have a sense of humor. That's not true. <laughs> you just proved you could be very funny. Um, I didn't approach Hulk. Hulk approached me. Right. Up until the night that Hulk approached me, which was only a couple weeks prior to the pay-per-view. Uh, up until the time Hulk approached me, it was going to be Sting. It was going to be the third man. Yeah. And everybody was on board with that. That was going to be the direction. And now I didn't tell a lot of people either. I mean, I knew it, Sting knew it. Mm, that might have been it. Right. But then I got a call from Hulk, who he was off doing a movie. And he couldn't leave the set. He was in California. I was in Atlanta. And Hulk called me and said, hey, you know, let's chat. Any way you can get out here and meet me on the set. So I said, sure. I had time. I jumped on a plane the next day, flew out to L.A. and made my way to the location where the movie was being produced. And sat down in Hulk's trailer and said, hey, brother, who's the third man? I didn't want to tell him. So it's kind of like, eh, what do I say? What do I say? And kind of like when I was across the table from Ted Turner, you know, I thought, oh, okay, I'll just, well, who do you think it should be? <laughs> I try to protect myself. And Hulk looked at me and said, you're looking at him, brother. I went, yeah. whoa, okay, that'll work. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure did. Uh, and I suppose something I wanted to ask as well, so I don't know if you've mentioned this before, but so how do you went along with Sting? Would he still be Sting, or would he be Hollywood Steve Ford, and would he be around face paint or no face paint? So, had it been Sting? Who knows, man? There's no way of knowing. I think, though, if, if you like to kind of play with those ideas in your head, and a lot of people do, and that's mm. cool, um, kind of what-if booking, you know, yeah. which is fun. It, it oh, is fun. fun. Yeah. Um, you, you know, if you imagine Sting coming out as the anti-hero, you know, or turning similarly to the way Hogan did, because everybody would have expected Sting to come down and save Macho Man, the baby face, right? Yeah. Um, that's what you would expect. Mm. And then have Sting, you know, turn on Mach, just like Hulk Hogan did, and then cut a scathing po promo, turning on all the fans. Uh, it would have worked. Would have worked well. Yeah. Now, what would Sting look like when he came back the following week? Because Hulk Hogan was in his red and yellow and he came back with his black and white. Well, guess what? Sting eventually came back in black yeah. and white. Yeah, I suppose. So who knows if that would have happened or something similar? Mm. Who knows? It's a fun thing to think about, though. Oh, it is. It's probably it's a series I've always been thinking about doing for this channel, or What If series. So uh, something I would like to play about with uh, in the future. But... So Bash of the Beach um, came and Hogan dropped the leg on Matcha Man. So when you saw the reaction from the fans while Hogan was cutting the promo, was you rubbing your hands together and be like, yes, we've got something? No, I, I, that would have been far more sophisticated. I was, <laughs> I, 
was like a giddy 14 year old kid. Yeah. I was like, Whoa, this is all because they were throwing stuff in the ring. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, that, I had never seen a reaction like that. Uh-huh. Truth be told, very few people have ever seen a spontaneous reaction like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just awe inspiring. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. But you know, I wasn't counting money in my head. I was just enjoying the moment. Yeah. It's it's that, that type of moment. I mean, uh, we actually done a um, Greatest Hill Turn debate, and that actually won it because uh, you can't top it just for the fact, for the aftermath, what happened from it. But it's them moments we don't really get anymore. But after the turn was made, so who started coming up with, I suppose, the logo, the name New World Order? I know you've mentioned that. Uh, the, the theme song itself was already in the archives for Turner or something like that. So how did the look and logo and the name all come about? Well, when we were done, almost immediately with Bash at the Beach, we had to go over to Orlando um, to because we were filming a lot of our shows there. So mm-hmm. and it was only an hour away. So we coordinated things in, or two hours away. So we coordinated things in such a way that we could get back over to the Orlando studios almost some of the people immediately after the pay-per-view while we were there, you know, we knew, cause I didn't know what, you know, in advance, the whole, you know, when I was going over the, the name NWO, we didn't know we were going to call it NWO at Bash, before Bash at the Beach. Right. Right. We never knew that that NWO name came about because I was helping Hulk Hogan, you know, with his promo, trying to figure out what he was going to say after he turned on Randy and I said, Hulk, you know, and you grab the mic and you say, this is the new world order of professional wrestling. As soon as I said it, I went, oh, back yeah. to that sweet spot conversation. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, and Hulk did too. He went, ooh, I like that. And then it was born in mm. spontaneously. It's not something that we had planned on weeks or months before. It just happened. And then once... You know, we heard it in the promo. We went, okay, we got to come up with some NWO graphics and T-shirts. So we, when we got to Orlando the very next day, we immediately went to work with the graphics department um, at Disney MGM Studios. Right. And we said, okay, here's what we need. You know, this thing is called the New World Order of Professional Wrestling, and they're bad guys, and they have a real kind of street attitude, and they're renegades. And I gave them all kinds of descriptors in terms of what I saw in my head for the NWL at that time. And they came back with a bunch of different ideas. One of those ideas is the infamous or famous NWL logo that was developed externally. It wasn't developed internally at WCW. It was developed at Disney MGM Studios. Now, we paid for it. We own it, all that yeah. good stuff. But it was their creative department that came up with it. Um, our side took that graphic, that design, and created television graphics for it. Yeah. And then we started thinking, okay, what's well, got this edgy black and white feel? I think it was Craig Leathers, actually, who said, let's fill, let's do their, let's try filming it in black and white, making it look all static. Well, whoa, that's cool. So, you know, a spontaneous thought, you know, an hour before the match, where the world, the, the term New World Order came out of my mouth randomly. You know, I hadn't thought about it before. It just came out, you know, then it was part of a promo, then became a logo, 
then became television graphics, then became the basis for the interview style that we used. So it all kind of fed into itself, but most of it was spontaneous. Right. And obviously every villain needs its hero. So how early on did you decide that Sting was going to be the anti-hero and eventually uh, portrayed as Crow gimmick? Well, as I said, when, you know, the idea for once we knew we were bringing in Scott and Kevin, the idea for NWO, the idea that a key WCW, you know, top person had to be the one to turn heel to galvanize, you know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash with now a, 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 a traitor, if you will, someone yeah. who betrayed WCW, um, basic storytelling. Um, I picked Sting right away because I didn't think Hulk Hogan wanted to do it. Hulk had told me. 10 months earlier, a year earlier, that he didn't want to ever want to be heel. Okay, right. scratch him off the list. Who's next? Well, the next most popular character that made sense, you could argue, you know, Flair was a bigger, I guess, part of WCW's legacy than even Sting, although they were very close in that regard. But still, Ric Flair was Ric Flair. He'd been around a lot longer, right? Yeah. But you couldn't really see, from a casting point of view, that would be considered bad casting. Right. Whereas Sting, you know, was young enough and edgy enough, and because he wasn't so established, it would be more believable if someone like Sting were to turn his back on WCW than it would Ric Flair. Mm -hmm. So Sting was my guy. That decision was made pretty, pretty quickly once we knew we were going to do the NWO angle. Um, and it was going to be Sting all the way, you know, Sting was ready to be plan B even the night of the turn. Yeah. So, um, there you go. I hope that answered your question. Maybe yeah. a lot of weeds. <laughs> and I know, I think it was um, Scott Hall who came up with the Crow gimmick for him. But whose idea was it for the idea for, for now, right? From this point, well, I know they've done the War Games match, but basically from that point till Starcade 97, fact, he wasn't going to wrestle any matches or even cut a promo. So, how did that come about, that idea? Um, Again, you know, it's hard hard to pinpoint any one big idea and try to figure out what portion of it somebody came up with. I, yeah. I think it's, it, it's fair to everybody, I think, of those involved for me to say largely that was my idea because one of the other things that I was really determined to do in addition to kind of creating a new way to present the product, making it more reality-based, um, the other thing that I... I believed in was long-term storylines. Oh yeah. So it was kind of my idea to go, okay, I don't want these two to touch for a year. Once we, I kind of said that, then I think it was uh, a collaborative effort. Sting had ideas. Scott Hall had ideas. Kevin Nash had ideas. Hulk Hogan had ideas. Kevin Sullivan certainly had ideas and everybody had an opportunity to kind of shape that idea. Um, yeah. So, it would be really silly for any one person to take credit for whatever creative went into it in terms of setting forth the goal. I'll take credit for that. I don't feel guilty about that. Cool. And uh, eventually you became part of the NWO. So was it something you always wanted to be like uh, on screen? Well, obviously you was always on screen, but an on screen character with, you know, as a villain, I suppose, compared to no. being a commentator or was it just no. organic? No, it, well, it was never my goal ever 
to become mm. a character on, or, or, or even announcer. It was never my goal growing up or even as an adult. I didn't aspire to be an on-camera personality in the wrestling business. It just right. kind of happened. Um, once I got there, I was very content, uh, very content um, being a play-by-play -play announcer, even when I was doing play-by-play -play on Nitro prior to becoming a character. That was all I needed. I had didn't aspire to be an in-ring type of character, not a wrestler, but even a, a GM or manager type. But the story made so much sense. I mean, God, who made more sense to turn on WCW than the president of the company? Yeah. You know, because at that time, the president of that company was a young, cocky, arrogant, smarmy son of a bitch. <laughs> God, it just made sense. Now, I wasn't as cocky and smarmy, you know, before I became an announcer. But still, even as an announcer, I wasn't, you know, I'd only been around WCW for a short period of time. I yeah. didn't have that flair, Arn Anderson, Sting, Lex Luger, Steiner Brothers. I didn't have that kind of, number one, I wasn't on their level in terms of being a star. But aside from that, those guys all had deep roots and connections. I didn't have any, which made me a more likely candidate to be somebody that would betray them. Yeah. Who's more, who's more likely to betray you? Somebody that's you know been around for a month or or a year or two or and doesn't have any loyalty or somebody that's been around a long time and has proven their loyalty. So the fact that it made it was so easy and I guess believable as far as wrestling can be believed, the story was just a little bit more believable with me doing it than anybody else. And it made sense because, you know, Hulk and I had good chemistry in terms of promos and interviews and things like that. So it was a functional decision as well as a creative one. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask you that. How much fun was it just, you know, being in the ring, getting all this heat from the fans and obviously, you know, being with Hulk Hogan during all this time? Well, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Roddy Piper eventually when he revealed me. Yeah. You know, the giant is the giant was emerging as a character in WCW. There were so many people that I got to inter I got to interact with that were it was just nothing but fun. It was a level of fun that I never expected to have in the industry. Mm. Honestly. Awesome. And one of the stars, because there's a narrative that WCW didn't make any stars, which is complete <laughs> bullshit. because uh, one of the stars you helped made was Diamond Dallas Page when he hit Scott Hall with that diamond cutter. So what was it like? Because I know you're good friends with DDP. So how was it like seeing the big pops DDP was starting to get and like him being pushed into this mega face? It was uh, it was a difficult journey, you know, yeah. because Paige and I were Paige and I were good friends when I was a C squad announcer and he was a C and a half squad announcer. Right. You know, we we did play by play and color together on all the shows that nobody ever watched in syndication. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we both kind of came up early on different times, but in much the same manner, so that when I got thrust into a management position, and it was my nature to want to help my buddy, and my buddy's nature to kind of look for a little bit of an assist, but we both knew that would never work. Yeah. He knew that if I really, if I showed any favor to him at all, or if it even by coincidence looked like I might have shown him favor, it would have created a level of pressure on him that he knew he couldn't, it wouldn't work. I knew the same thing from a different perspective. So 
for both of us, it was a really frustrating period of time, but he kept working at it. He made the decisions to sacrifice, to, you know, do something that everybody told him he was too old to do. He worked 20 hours a day to get to where he was worthy of an opportunity. And that took a while. It didn't happen overnight. But by the time he was ready and together, we kind of fine tuned his character a little bit. And I got, got him, I convinced him to get rid of that flea market, you know, collection of gimmicks that he came to the ring with every single week and just be himself and be a, a, a middle America kind of guy instead of trying to be a, you know, cheap C-Squad movie star. Um, he connected. Once he connected, uh, it was kind of like watching a family member all of a sudden reach a dream it's like you you're you experience it vicariously through them yeah as best you can you can't feel what they feel but you, you kind of think you can so yeah I that's right. awesome and so this is during the time where the uh nwo um the numbers started basically going up like uh, you know filling out more members and such and i know one of the reasons you given was because eventually you wanted Monday to be NWO Nitro. So, and I think it was Thursday Thunder was going to be the WCW show. So I don't know if you've answered this, Eric. So the question I've always wanted to ask, had everything went ahead and you had the NWO show with NWO members, was it going to be a case that NWO members would be facing each other? Would you be having WCW stars on the show? Or what would have been the concept of the show in the idea? Well, like any story, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a story that I'm watching now that maybe you're familiar with. I'll use the Vikings. Vikings, for example, if you're familiar with the show, came out when it was 2011. And my wife and I watched the whole thing and we kind of forgot about it. Now we're watching it again. I am, Uh, yeah. (laughs) You see the same thing, you know, that happens, you know, with the Northmen, where people who are once allies start getting jealous and they betray each other within the organization or within the, the Vikings Northman tribe, if you will, if they call them tribes over there, I don't know what they, they call them tribes over yeah. here, right. people, which the, the Vikings were in that part of the world at that time. But um, that story is a story that would have played out in NWO. You would have had people who were unaffiliated, who yeah. maybe freelancers who sometimes you'd see them on Thunder and sometimes you'd see them on Nitro and they were aspiring to get signed. They were right. aspiring, they would have aspired to curry favor with whatever the decision maker was in each respective camp. Their story, right? Yeah. So yes, I mean all of the above. At some at one point, I think in the beginning, I can only imagine this because we didn't spend a lot of time on the creative because things change very quickly from defining the strategy and figuring out a plan to, you know, having things changed underneath us. But originally it was, okay, let's have our core group of guys over here at NWO. At some point there'll be friction within the camp, which we saw play out, by the way, on in Nitro. Most packs, yeah. Do that. But we would have done that on a larger, more sophisticated scale, and told those stories a little better because it would have been more important. Um, you would have seen that play out and you would have seen, you know, like I said, freelance talent come in trying to get signed by the NWO or trying to get signed by WCW and people, some people over Thunder, you know, on WCW, not wanting those people to be a part of it or some people want them. There's a million ways to tell those stories. Yeah. Awesome. 
And I mean, during his time, obviously, he's been winning the ratings war. Uh, Lex Luger got a one week run with the belt, a uh, big victory over Hogan. And I suppose, so one of the things what started um, bringing up a lot was the Montreal screw job. So obviously, you know, you've had to deal with Brett and that he was coming in. So when the Montreal, you've probably answered this a million times, but when, yeah, I don't know if you actually watched it live when it happened or when you heard about it, was you surprised how it happened? Yeah, of course. You know, that kind of thing doesn't happen in the wrestling industry yeah. too often, if ever, that I can recall or that I was aware of at the time, at least. Um, yeah, I was very supportive. I wasn't watching it live. It was a Sunday evening. I, I remember I was sitting on the couch with my wife watching something else on television, not watching the paper. And I got a call from Rick Root, who saw everything go down, saw what happened in the locker room and all that. And, um, or at least I think he did. He might have been outside the door. I don't remember. But either way, you know, Rick called me and said, you're not going to believe what just happened. And Rick Root, laid it all out to me. He was disgusted. He was pissed off at Vince. Mm. Um, Rick and I had always had a good relationship. I'd known Rick before I even got into the wrestling business. Oh, well. So uh, Rick called me and he laid it out. And he said, man, I got to get out of here. Is there a spot for me? I said, sure. How soon can you get out of your deal? He said, right now. I said, you mean you're available? Like yeah. right now? Yep. I said, get on a fucking plane. I'm going to put you on TV tomorrow. Nice. And he made history. Um, but he's someone actually I want to speak about because, um, I mean, he's kind of underrated, but I've always loved Rick Rude. What's your favorite memories of Rick Rude? Oh, you know, I don't have any favorite memories. I think on a personal level, um, you know, it won't mean anything to anybody other than me. But uh, on a personal level, while I was still early in my WCW tenure as a C-Squad announcer, because Rick and I known each other before, we had more than anything, we had a lot of mutual friends in Minnesota. I knew right. of Rick, I should say, you know, he and I weren't friends before I got into the wrestling, but I knew of Rick, and we had a lot of mutual friends. Kind of hung out in the same places, that type of thing. Uh, so by the time I made it to WCW, Rick and I kind of gravitated towards each other just because of mutual friends. You know, probably the most significant being Brad Ringens, which is a name not many people know about, but... Um, Anyway, Brad and I were friends, and Brad and Rick were close friends. So one day, Rick got a brand-new Jaguar convertible, uh, beautiful car. It was a used car. It was like five years old, four or five years old. But at the time, still very, very nice. It was an XKE, I think. And it was a beautiful day in Atlanta, and we had to go to TV. So Rick said, hey, why don't you drive with me? And I got my new Jag. It was about a two-hour drive. We thought, well, what the hell? It's a beautiful day. I'm in a Jaguar with Rick Rude with the top down. Let's go for it. <laughs> and it was just a fun ride. But, you know, nothing nothing crazy. But yeah. I, I remember it well. Yeah, he's a beast, sadly, miss. He was one of my favorites and, you know, very sadly, miss. And uh, so I suppose this all led up to Starcade and obviously the infamous finish, which you've answered a million times. But... I suppose one thing I've always wanted to ask, so Nick Patrick, I think he came out recently, he said he just made a mistake. Did he get chewed out afterwards? Because obviously this is the biggest pay-per-view, you know, for WCW at that point, and I think in the history, he smashed all kinds of records. So was anyone upset with Nick Patrick afterwards? Like, you've botched the count or anything like that? No. no. The, there were a lot of people disappointed in the finish of that match, no question about it. Plus, yeah. notably me. Um, but 
the choice that Nick Patrick made, whether it was correct or incorrect, was largely a result of bad communication. Right. So that's not entirely Nick's fault. One could argue that Nick should have done whatever Nick needed to do to get the information. Nick has also recently come out, not recently, but a while back, came out and said in an interview that he couldn't find me in the arena. Therefore, he didn't know what to do, so he just made a judgment call. I called bullshit on that. I wasn't fine. I wasn't hiding from anybody. I never have and never will. Um, Nick could have found me had he wanted me, but still doesn't change the fact that it was my responsibility ultimately. I can point the finger to other people, maybe be justified in doing that, but that would be gutless because the ultimate responsibility was mine. And I failed. I didn't make sure that the referee knew exactly what we were going to do. So since it was partly my fault, partly the talent's fault, partly the agent's fault, Mm. and partly Nick Patrick's fault, how do I fire Nick Patrick? Mm. In hindsight, do you, I mean, we don't live for regrets, and obviously you sm- you smashed all records that night, but in hindsight, do you wish the match was booked a different way, for example, like Sting basically dominating Hogan during this match and have the WCW roster around the ring, you know, basically pushing back to the NWO and the have their conclusive that, victory? That was, that was the plan. That had right. been the plan for a long, long time. I don't know that Sting would have dominated Hogan all the way through the match. I think it would have probably looked something more similar to perhaps Sting looking really good in the first 30% or 33 and a third percent of the match because I would have tried to book it like a three-act structured movie. But in the first act, you know, Sting would be in a little bit of trouble. By the second act, he would have been in a whole lot of trouble. And by the middle of the third act, things would have turned around and Sting would have overcome all kinds of challenges and, and demons and all, all sorts of heelish things to ultimately prevail. That would have been the storyline of that match. How it would have been executed, I don't know, but that would have been more like it as opposed to Sting coming out and just beating the shit out of Hogan and winning. That would have mm-hmm. not been the story. Uh, but that was originally the plan, and that's why I think everybody was so disappointed. But there are other things going on. You know, some things that I've alluded to, but I'm not going to talk about because it's not my place to talk. Sting wasn't, in my opinion, or in Hogan's opinion, game ready that night. Right. Biggest event that you've been involved in in 12 months, and the focus is going to be on you, and the pressure is going to be on you, and you're going to be carrying the torch for an extended period of time, and you show up not game ready. That's a bad situation to be in for everybody. And I mean, I suppose a good backup to this. So you had a new baby face coming through the ranks, Bill Goldberg. So how was it seeing the rise of Goldberg and seeing the fans get behind this monster of a baby face? You know, obviously, I wasn't. You know, I hadn't been close friends with. Bill Goldberg for a long time, like I was with DDP. So I obviously didn't have that kind of vicarious connection, you know, that I had with Paige. But I think what made Goldberg's um, explosion onto the scene exciting in a different way was that the fact that it happened so fast. 
Yeah. I mean, he went, you know, zero to hero in about a minute. It yeah. just, it happened so quickly. And again, I'd never experienced seeing something happen that fast. Usually, you know, getting someone over is a long-term process. Sometimes it takes years for it to, and look how long it took Steve Austin to become Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. You know, you don't see somebody ascend to that level of popularity on a trajectory like that. It wasn't even a trajectory. A trajectory implies it goes up and it comes down. Bill just went straight up. That's right. It was right. crazy. Eventually he came down. But, man, for a period of time there, you know, a year or two, it was like, holy crap, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose we'll have to speak about the uh, finger poker doom. So. I mean, I don't know if it's the booking committee, but this was, in my opinion, the 10. Obviously, we know why WCW folded in the end, because of AOL, time went a merger. That is the reason. But as for, I suppose, the popularity starting to decline, the finger poker doom. So whose idea was it? And I suppose hindsight is a wonderful thing, but how did it come about? Again, you know, you've asked me that now a couple of times and I have to give you the same answer. So I apologize. But, yeah. you know, I can't tell you who's who came up with the idea to do this. <laughs> I can't tell you that, brother. You know, my guess, and it's only a guess, um, is that the majority of that was Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash. Yeah. We knew what we wanted. You know, we wanted to show real. So we wanted to tease the fact that Hogan and Nash were going to tear each other apart, blah 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 blah, and they were going to NWO was going to fall apart. We wanted people to believe that only for NWO to outsmart them and make fun of them in the process as a way to get heat. That's what we wanted. Now, the decision to do the finger poke of doom as the manner by which we tried to achieve that heat, I can't tell you that. You know. Make shit up like everybody else does, but I can't. <laughs> cool. And um, so I suppose '99 was the year where it started to get a bit of pressure. Like ratings were starting to go down, I suppose, and pay-per-view buys and stuff. And eventually, you made your departure, and uh, they brought a good friend, uh, Vince Russo, in. So, did you watch the show while Vince Russo was booking, or did you just take yourself away from wrestling during that time? No, we're going to have to wrap this up in a few minutes, so we'll probably yeah. close this chapter up here talking about Vince Russo. But no, I didn't watch any WCW. Well, take that back. I probably watched a segment or two um, if I knew something interesting or important or curious was going to happen. I'd make a point to watch a segment or two during that three or four month window when I was out of it, out of WCW. <clears throat> but no, I didn't watch on a weekly basis, so. No. And last question before we do wrap up then. So I actually had Russo on the show and I said, I kind of understand the method of the madness with David Arquette getting the belt. It was on the cover of USA Today. I don't agree with it. I understand the method of the madness. I don't understand why he put the belt on himself. I asked him about it. He didn't give me a straightforward answer. How did you feel when you saw that happen? I like the idea of it at the time. Right. And you have to understand that two things were happening at the same time. Yep. One was, and this was a very big opportunity, WCW failed to capitalize on it, but notwithstanding that, there was a big opportunity. WCW was in the middle of co-producing a feature film for Warner, Warner Movies. 
and to be able to that featured WCW characters in the movie. So as a means to help get publicity for that movie and strengthen the strategic relationship that we have with our new owner, Time Warner, which owned Warner Films, I thought it made perfect sense from a business perspective. I understand that wrestling fans looked at it differently, and I knew that they would. But it wasn't permanent. By the way, David Arquette beat fucking me. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't beat Jeff Jarrett. He didn't beat a WCW wrestling talent. He beat a freaking power drunk announcer. Yeah. That's not unbelievable, folks. Now, the, the unfortunate part is that he, you know, to wrestling purists, because they feel they need to wear that wrestling purist badge of honor, like they were somehow associated with the industry, really. Um, sure, I understand that that's oh, sacrilege. Put the belt on a civilian and an actor. Oh, my God, who did he ever beat? I get it. Yep. Have at it. That's how you feel. But from a business perspective, much like the zombies, by the way, yeah. it made strategic sense. And it was temporary. And David Arquette didn't beat a WCW wrestler. So I get why people feel the need. Oh, my God, that was the downfall of WCW. It was a sin. Oh, my God, he's the Antichrist. Get over your shit, man. Get off of it. Don't take yourself or the product that seriously, because ladies and gentlemen, it's a business, first yeah. and foremost. Yeah, like I said, Teresa, I understand the method of the madness for putting the belt on our kit. Um, but what was your reaction when Russo put the belt on himself? I felt much differently about that. Yeah, we'll, I you were... <laughs> we'll, we'll tease that one for the next podcast. <laughs> cool. Well, it's an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Eric. But before we do sign off, tell everyone where they can find you uh, on social media and also your awesome uh, podcast, 83 Weeks. Sure. You can listen to the podcast uh, anywhere you get your favorite podcast. Just look, search for 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. You can also tune in. Now, we do it live every Wednesday night here in, uh, in the States. We go up at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, U.S., we do a live radio show, both Conrad and I, where we take calls from all over the world. Um, we've got a number. I think it's, uh, oh, gosh, I have it around here somewhere. Well, I don't have it handy. But if you go to fortheheat.com, for, F-O-R, theheat.com, uh, you can listen. You can stream anywhere around the world. I think it's 855-484-3432 is the call-in number. And you can listen to the show, call in, listen Stream it at fortheheat.com um, or find me on Twitter at ebischoff. Awesome. Well, Mr. Bischoff, it's been an absolute pleasure. I promise I've got about three or four pages left, but we're going to have to do a part two. Do, brother. Uh, we're going to have to do a part two for WDB one day and a part three for TNA. <laughs> well, I know I've enjoyed this and, and you've been very patient. And I appreciate that, but you've been persistent and I appreciate that even more. So awesome. uh, feel free to give me a call in a month or two and uh, reach out to me and we'll do it again. That's awesome. So yeah, thank you very much, and yeah, we'll do it again. Cheers. Hey, James here. Thanks for checking out this interview. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. And that's for announcement for next week's interview. So coming along on the whole train, we've got the Godfather. Had a great time talking to him. Uh, some great funny stories, and 
going through all these gimmicks from Papa Shango to Kama Mustafa to the Godfather to the Goodfather and right to Sensor. So we had a really, really great chat. And if you do, are looking forward to that interview, uh, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. Really does help the channel out. Wherever you listen on podcast form or on YouTube, like, five star rating, give us a comment, subscribe, hit that bell icon. Really, really does help the channel out and just helps the channel grow more and more. And the more we grow, the bigger we get, the bigger the audience we can get, and also the bigger the guests we can get. So, really does help me out. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, uh, same again, type in that 90s wrestling podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at 90s wrestling pod. And we've also got the new Facebook page, that 90s wrestling podcast, which is starting to get pretty popular now. So, hit us a follow, and I'll be sure to follow you back. And if you've got any questions for me, shoot me a message. So, everyone, until then, I'll catch you in the next one. Bye.